My guest on the podcast today is none other than US presidential candidate for 2024, Vivek Ramaswamy. If you guys have been following my YouTube channel, you'll know that I've been covering Vivek's videos for a few months now. I've had my skepticisms, but ultimately I'm a fan and I think he's a great leader. So I've been in touch with Vivek's team and somehow we managed to line up an interview and I'm so grateful for him sparing his time. And I hope that you guys will enjoy this interview as much as I did. So with that, let's get into it. Vivek Ramaswamy, welcome to Rattlesnake TV podcast. I really appreciate your time, first of all. It's good to be here, man. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you, man. Good. Um, so we haven't got much time today. We're going to keep it short and sweet. First of all, I'd love to get a reaction from the Alex Jones interview that you did. He's one of the most radioactive men to interview. So what was it like meeting an actual boogeyman? Yeah, it's part of why I wanted to do it. Everybody says this is a guy you shouldn't talk to. Well, my view is nobody is a guy you shouldn't talk to if you really believe in free speech and open debate. Mm. Far left, far right, doesn't matter. I believe in practicing what I preach. And so I went in to listen with an open mind. And I think that if there's somebody who, you know, a lot of people may disagree with his views. I don't believe in turning anybody into a pariah who can't at least have their views heard, even if you agree with some and disagree with others. And so that's in, in some ways... As a free speech absolutist and advocate, if somebody's the more censored somebody is, the more it makes me at least want to talk to them and to be able to air that open debate in the public. Absolutely. We needed that at the moment. And also, Vivek, I'm really interested to know about your leadership uh, philosophy, because obviously coming from a high achieving background, being a CEO, leading a presidential campaign and then wanting to be the leader of the free world. What is your leadership philosophy and how have you developed that over the years? Yeah, my leadership philosophy is honesty and transparency. And you know what? You would rather, you'd rather lose and tell the truth than to win by playing some political snakes and ladders. I mean, that's the case in this campaign. But in a certain sense, identify whatever your mission is, right? If, you don't, if you're just aimlessly wandering without a clear direction, that's a formula for losing. If you say that this is a mission, it's worth pursuing, and then I'm going to go to the South Pole or the North Pole, regardless of what anybody else says... That's a formula for success. And I think people follow those who are guided by a mission. Mm. And so, you know, in this race, I have a mission. Revive our missing national identity. Pass that on to the next generation. Great. That's a clearly identifiable mission. But I think even if you're building a company to say that our job is to develop medicines for patients who need them, or our job is to offer index funds that offer alternatives to those that are politicized, these are actual businesses that I've founded, that's my leadership philosophy is be guided by a very clear purpose, stick to that purpose. And one of the things I've learned in my experience as an entrepreneur too is I've been at my best when I've done that. And my learnings is, you know, I've been less than my best when you veer off and chase other shiny objects along the way that distract you from your core mission. So among other things, that would be my leadership philosophy. The other thing I would say is that you gotta believe that the obstacles are illusions. You have to believe that for all the reasons people will tell you you can't accomplish something, run through the wall, around the wall, under it, over it, it doesn't matter. And if you behave that way, you actually make it true. Mm. And in terms of your team and the team that you're putting together, I've noticed from just interacting with them over the last week, I've been interacting with Zach, and he was up at midnight when I did the, uh, the time converter. And it seems like these guys really believe in what you're selling here. So what's the vibe like around the various offices that you've got going? Are you guys pretty close? 
Yeah, very much so. <laughs> and, and many people who I didn't know even six or eight months ago, but have become like extended family members. For me, my view is I don't hold anybody to a standard that I don't hold myself. And so we each push each other to be the best versions of ourselves. People work hard. But if you're working hard and it feels like work, then you're missing the point, right? Because once, once it starts to feel like labor, then you've lost your sense of ownership and the rest is just a countdown to loss. But mm -hmm. if you actually are doing your job in a way that feels like you're expressing yourself, part of who you really are, it's not just work hard, it's more stop at nothing until you've achieved the purpose you've chosen. That's a very different philosophy than just hard work. And I think that that's something that guides the teams that I've built over the years and the businesses that I've led and, and marks the character of this campaign as well. And you know, we're guided by the purpose that got us together and we're not gonna stop until we achieve it. Mm. And one of the big challenges, I'm always so fascinated by this in terms of the geopolitical arena. And when you walk into that uh, that boardroom where there's a round table and then you look to your left and you see Putin, former KGB, you see Xi Jinping, who's a guy who's clawed his way up from the bottom. You see the Saudi royals. You see, you know, Justin Trudeau, who used to be a drama teacher. Uh, when you're going into that situation down the line, when you picture yourself in that situation, we know you're smart enough, but do you think you're tough enough to really hold it with those guys? Absolutely. I think that once you're grounded in your principles, you know who you are, then you're firmly rooted and you're not gonna be shaken. So my principle is this, as the next US president, I stand for the interests of American citizens, period. That's my moral mm. responsibility. And if you believe that's your moral responsibility, then no thug in another part of the world or within this country itself <laughs> is gonna shake me from doing it. And so, yeah, absolutely. That's what's required in the next president of the United States. You need somebody who has an actual positive vision for where we're going, but unshakable in my commitments to where we actually are and who we are. And you know, that's the way it's going to, I'm going to lead this country domestically, taking on the deep state, the administrative mm -hmm. bureaucracy at home, which no doubt will not enjoy my presence as president. <laughs> it's how I'm going to treat autocrats abroad when I deal with them too. We're not going to shake and we're not going to budge. That's what it's going to take to revive this country. And it's certainly a mission you mentioned here at home as well in terms of the bureaucrats. And there's a, a really interesting clip of Vladimir Putin talking with a Russian journalist. And he says that he's seen many presidents come and go. They all want to make a big change. But then when they get into office, the men with the briefcases come in and they tell them how it goes. And I think he's referring to the deep state. So when the men with the briefcases come and try and tell you how it goes, what's your response? You're fired. That's the answer. We have 75% federal headcount reduction plan in the end of my first term. If somebody works for you and you can't fire them, that means they don't work for you. That's the truth. It means you work for them because you're responsible for what they do without any authority to change it. And the dirty little secret in American politics today is that the people who we elect to run the government, they're not the ones who actually even run the government. It's, you could call it the managerial class. The men in briefcases could be one way to describe it. But it's this managerial class in the bureaucracy that is sucking the lifeblood out of our electoral democracy and our constitutional republic. That changes on my watch, but it's going to require somebody who can actually run the executive branch of the government as a chief executive rather than as a puppet. That's going to take somebody coming from the outside, somebody who's willing to break glass, who has complete and total disregard for the norms of Washington, D.C.,
and that I do. Mm. But it's also going to take somebody who knows and understands the Constitution. Because they, I think they duped President Trump in many ways, the people around him. They said, you can't fire these people because of civil service protections. Well, read the law. That does not apply to mass layoffs. And mass layoffs are absolutely what I am bringing to the D.C. bureaucracy. So that's a unique combination. Somebody who understands the law but isn't just a legal academic in some corner. Somebody who's also an executive and can see this through with the spine. That's what calls me into this race because those two qualities don't usually go together. But when I look myself in the mirror and ask myself, how am I going to make my contribution to this great country we call home? That's what it's going to take is a president who has both those qualities in the White House. And especially as a leader from a different generation, I think we can do that in a way that nobody else can. And you mentioned there that you 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 read the law. And this is one of the th things I find quite interesting about you is that you were a CEO in a completely different industry in terms of biotech. And now you've come into this presidential race. Was there ever a moment where you were thinking, I, I hope that I've done the groundwork here and I hope that nobody's going to be able to like expose me on anything. Were you really confident coming into this? I am. And I, I've spent the last three years, I mean, I've written two books, three books over the last two to three years. And those aren't normal candidate books. I mean, for the people who have found their way through them, these are books that are quoted in some of the groundbreaking appellate court opinions relating to constitutional law in this country. I, I do have a legal background along the way as well. And so my view is part of the founding spirit of this country, the 1776 spirit, was really a spirit of people who didn't just have narrow domain expertise in one area. Yes, I've been a biotech CEO. Yes, I've overseen mm -hmm. the development of medicines, five of which are FDA approved today. But that's not the whole story. You know, I'm sitting in a swivel chair here talking to you. <laughs> that was invented by Thomas Jefferson, actually, mm -hmm. while he was writing the Declaration of Independence. Benjamin Franklin invented the Franklin stove, the bifocal spectacles. Mm -hmm. The remedy for a common cold was first, actually one of the earliest ones was invented by Benjamin Franklin. So that's the spirit we need to bring back. And today we have this limiting, confining culture in the country that tells you to shut up, sit down, do as you're told, bow down to the experts. You haven't gotten a degree in that particular area, so you can have no opinion. I reject that. I think part of what let loose the founding spirit of the United States of America was that culture of exploration that we're the pioneers, we're the explorers, with nobody and no government stopping us from achieving whatever we can, making the most of our God-given gifts and our God-given potential. That's the way I've lived my life, and that's the way I'm going to lead this country. And so, no, I'm not some guy who's just a biotech entrepreneur or a CEO of companies. Yes, I've done that, but that's not the whole me. And I think that's part of the spirit we've lost in this country. Thomas Jefferson, in some ways, is my favorite president, my idol is intellectual idol, certainly, and I think that that's the kind of spirit that I'm going to bring to the White House as well. Somebody who's not a partisan hack, somebody, yes, who's an independent thinker, but who then understands the actual principles, the why of what we're doing. And I think that'll, I hope that'll make me stronger as a leader. I think it will. Hmm. And do you have a much of a relationship with Trump? I mean, I know you guys have been, uh, there's somewhat of an alliance, I think, forming there. But do you have much of a relationship? As in, have you talked to him on the phone? Do you text? Have you met him? The alliance is simple. We're the two America First candidates in this race. So it's an America First alliance that spans tens of millions of people, I think hundreds of millions of people in this country. And he and I are at the leading edge of that movement. Now, hmm. I give him a ton of respect for being the president who led the way. 
and four years of success in this country and keeping us out of wars, growing the economy, beginning to expose the deep state, those are great accomplishments. But I want to build on that to now take the America First agenda to the next level. So, you know, I've gotten to know each other in the last few years. I respect him long before I was ever thinking about politics when I wrote my first book. That's when he and I first met. I respect him. I think that goes both ways. But it's going to take each of us playing our part to revive this country. And I'm in this to take the America First movement that he did a great job of, of really reviving in 2016. I'm now in this to take that to the next level. And I think we're going to succeed. It feels like we're entering into an age of the entrepreneur in terms of the entrepreneur politician who's done it in business and who's achieved great success and who now wants to come and do some surgery on the country and treat that a bit like a business. What do you think are some of the contributing factors to what's leading to the age of the entrepreneur and not the career politician? I think it's seeing what the career politicians have done to our country. I mean, these are people who don't know how to make money through the private sector, so they do it through their own government connections and their corruption instead. That's wrong. That ends on my watch. But I think people are sick and tired of the age-old politicians of the last 25 years who have led us to pointless wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, spent six and a half trillion dollars, sacrificed thousands of American lives, literally for no purpose, to no end. And so you see that same wheel spinning in both political parties, I think the Republican Party is correctly the one that's more likely to reject that mold and say, we don't want somebody who grew up in that cesspool to fix it. We need leaders coming from the outside who view public service, yes, as public service, not as self-enrichment opportunities, as many career politicians do. And so in some ways, I think the people of this country have wisened up, are judging by the results of the last 25 years. The career politicians haven't done as well, and people who come from the outside can do better. And I'm the ultimate outsider in this race in every way, even as a leader mm. from a different generation. I do think it's going to take somebody with fresh legs, somebody whose best days, I hope, are still yet ahead in life to see a country whose best days are still ahead of itself, too. I think America's best days still can be ahead, but it's going to take a new leader from a different generation coming in from the outside to lead us there. And that's why I'm in the race. Mm. So one of the sort of types of people that I'm very critical of on my channel and that you're very critical of as well is the neocon, the neocon types of politicians, the warmongers, the super PAC puppets like you've referred to. I've noticed that you've been slightly charitable with them recently in the sense that you say that they're the, they're the product of a broken system. Do you, how do you think that these people justify it to themselves? And this is, this is not me on my high horse because they are humans at the end of the day. How do they yeah. justify to themselves that they're actually engaging in this bloodthirsty behavior? Well, I think some of them convince themselves into believing it. Others really are just exploiting that system. So I wouldn't say all of them are good people, but many of them actually end up being good people who are just vessels for mm. advancing what their donor puppet masters tell them to say. I mean, it's, it's a rule of politics. It's like the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Every politician dances to the tune of their biggest donor. It's just a fact. It's not their fault. It's the mother's milk of politics. Now, in my case, that biggest donor is me by far. Yeah. But in many of these other cases, they wouldn't be able to run these races if they didn't listen to their donor masters. And that's what many of them do. Hmm. Now, some of them are one step worse than that. I mean, take the Nikki Haley's of the world. There's somebody who would be happy to send our kids to war in another country to buy a bigger house. That's just the fact of how she's played the political game, becoming a military contractor, serving on the board of Boeing after doing special favors for them, while the governor of South Carolina 
using government connections from a short-lived stint at the UN for her family to enter the military contracting business. This kind of corruption is just out with somebody who's then exploiting that system to make their family rich. So I think these neocons come in different flavors. Some of them want power and money. That's the Nikki Haley category. Some of them are just listless vessels for their donor masters. That's a whole bunch of others. And then some of them genuinely come to believe it, that this is how America ought to be focused in projecting strength, as they would say it abroad, while leaving America weak, actually at our own core at home. And so anyway, there's different categories. Not everybody fits one mm -hmm. of those molds. There's at least three different molds out there. I reject all of them. Dick Cheney 2.0 is crawling all over this Republican primary. That's what it is. That ends on my watch. I'm done with Dick Cheney 1.0. The last thing I want is 2.0, and yet that's what the Republican primary debate stage has looked like to me every time. And so my point is I'm not even just running against any one of these individuals. I'm running against that broken system that produces them like a bunch of vessels for that old worldview. I'm leading us away from that neocon worldview to one that puts the interests of citizens in this nation first. That will lead us to peace. It'll lead the world, I think, to greater peace and stability as well. My foreign policy is really simple. Avoid World War III, declare independence from communist China, and then protect this homeland, which is as mm. vulnerable as it's ever been. And that changes on my watch. And one of the things that I've respected about you recently is that you seem to have quite a cool head in crisis, which unfortunately isn't so common these days. And it seems like we've got crisis after crisis after crisis after crisis at the moment. What's your strategy when you hear the big news of something insane that's happening in the world? What's your instant reaction and how do you try and have the most measured response possible? So, look, I think we are human beings and I think that humanity can help us lead in a certain way. So do I have an emotional response when I hear about the ongoing shooting over the last 24 hours in Maine, or when I saw what Hamas did to Israel, which was inhumane and wrong. Absolutely, I do. And I think it's important to experience that and not suppress that, even to express that to people, letting them know that you're experiencing it. But when it comes to then making decisions, we collect ourselves and say, we're going to make decisions with our brain nonetheless. We've made our worst decisions, especially mm -hmm. in foreign policy, especially as it relates to going to war when it's done from a place of guttural emotion. This needs to be, when we think about putting our own lives and resources at stake, that needs to be a decision that we make with cool-headed rationality. And sometimes that involves taking the space to say, okay, I'm gonna allow myself to have that emotional response just for myself. You suppress it, it comes out then in weird ways. No, experience that, own it, even express it. Let other people know that you're experiencing it. That can even be useful in being mm -hmm. honest and transparent. And I go through that. We're all human beings. But when it comes to making decisions, don't make it from a place of emotion. We have to be cool-headed and asking what advances the American interest in the Middle East or in Ukraine or elsewhere around the world. And more often than not, almost always for me, that involves avoiding our involvement in wars that do not relate directly to the American interest. War, in my view, should not be a choice. It should never be a preference. It should only be a necessity and the national interest comes first. I don't think we should apologize for that. That's my moral obligation as the next president. It is to the citizens of this country, not to anybody else. And I think saying that out loud, it's honest. It allows our allies to make their decisions accordingly. It allows our allies to trust us. It allows our adversaries to understand that we mean it when it comes to our red lines. And ironically, it's actually when everybody has that clear understanding that you increase the probability of peace and reduce the probability of war. Most wars end up 
accidentally, especially large-scale wars, end up becoming large-scale wars, not on purpose, but by accident, because nobody has very clear red lines that are drawn. If instead, major power like the United States is honest about how we make our decisions, that allows everybody else to make rational decisions accordingly, too. That's how we avoid war. That's how we secure prosperity. And that's how I'm going to lead this country. Mm, well said. Vivek, I haven't got much more time, just a few more minutes. I'd love to get a... Yo, time for me, one more question, yeah. Yeah, uh, we've got one more question here from one of our Locals members. We've, I've been asking my community what they would like to know from you. So Dino from Wyoming says he loves your idea about obligatory service uh, or a civic exam to earn the right to vote, but how do you stop government organisations from using this as a political weapon and corrupting this mm -hmm. civics test? Great question. So the reason I, I started with the civics test is it's not some vaguely defined civics test. It's the same one we currently use that every immigrant has to pass in order to become a voting citizen of this country. Hmm. So I worry anytime you create anything that the government's touching, it lends itself to ideological capture. So it's a great question. But my view is I've been very limited about local law enforcement or military service as the options, not some vague, nebulous, you know, woke, capturable service that they then define. And the same thing for the civics test that we have already used for countless years for immigrants to become a voting citizen. That's the exact standard we need to use. That doesn't mean it's an end-all, be-all solution. Those could be perverted in the future. But if you're anchored to those limited, confined purposes of what exactly relates to national identity and civic identity, that's how you protect yourself against overreach, which we've seen otherwise in institutions that have a vaguely defined purpose. So it comes back to my philosophy of leadership. Clarity of yep. mission, clarity of purpose. That's how you avoid overreach. Fantastic. Vivek, before you go, I just want to say thank you very much. It means a lot for me to for you to be coming on my channel. Small fry like me, we don't really get uh, presidential candidates very often, so I really do appreciate your time. I appreciate it. This is it's the character of this campaign, so I appreciate you for having me as well. This is grassroots, bottom-up. If you want the super PACs to decide who the next president is, just turn on the ads on cable television. We're not doing it that way. This is bottom-up, grassroots-driven campaign, and so in some ways, I'm, I'm counting on all of you as well to, to lift this up, and so we'll continue to be as open as we can. Thanks a lot. Thank man. you, Vivek. Take care. Best of luck. Appreciate it.